Episode 23, Kaiju. Don't talk, just listen. enough to understand. A big, ugly monster stomped through the city. Lots got smashed. Plenty got squished. You've seen movies. You know how that goes. No, what you need to understand is the feel of the thing. Of the event. The terror of it that borders on something religious. Prior to its arrival, things have not been great. How could they be? But they've been getting better, at least. The shock of finding the city transported to another world, now beneath the black sun, and surrounded by a midnight desert, from out of which came an inexhaustible supply of creatures and beasts, that was fading. People adapt, and so they did, and real strides are being made to establish rules and order and civilization. Till the kaiju came. Till the impossibility of its power and the inarguable nature of its reality reminded one and all that whatever rules they followed, whatever order they invested in, None of it meant shit here, beneath the black sun. All that was left of you was to decide whether you would tremble, or flee, or die. Picture it. Picture the first low drum beats, little more than echoes of half-remembered thunder. Feel it in your gut as the thunder keeps sounding and keeps growing louder. Feel it in your fingers and toes, the reverberations as all the city is caught up in the same mad motion. See it now. See all the walls of the city dance to the Jericho jitter. And there, cresting the horizon, you see the thing itself. A storm given skin. Picture it clear, because it is about to happen again.
Cassandra warned as many as she could. Priya Patel drove her back and forth across the city, telling everyone and anyone they encountered to be ready because the kaiju was coming back. The women warned all the gang leaders and all the tribes. They climbed to the rooftops and trekked down the darkest alleyways. At each turn, they were met by the same not unreasonable question. How do you know? Ah. Therein lay the tricky part. The how was that after being brutally maimed in a battle with some toothy beasts, Cassandra had visited an astral realm beyond space and time, and there met a cryptic feminine being who spoke in riddles but foresaw with clarity this looming threat. Which, you know, was a tough sell. Everyone whom they spoke listened because it was Cassandra, and she deserved at least that much. Do they actually hear her? Not so much. Some were polite. Others flat out laughed. Dr. Andrews and the advisory board at St. Peter's informed Cassandra and Priya that they would take the warning under advisement and draft up evacuation plans in the event of this or other cataclysmic events. Cassandra had been able only to smile and nod and say a quiet thank you. This was the best she could hope for at this late date. Any day now, any minute, the monster could trundle back into the path of the city. Yet all anyone was willing to do was expend the most basic of half measures. Spring rain slicked the night streets as the ambulance rolled without direction, without purpose. All Cassandra could think was that all was lost. Priya placed a hand over hers. The hand was solid and warm to the touch. Cassandra lifted to her own lips and kissed each digit in turn, drawing a giggle from the driver. That taste. Cassandra had only recently come to know the taste of Priya's skin against her tongue, but now she could not fathom life without it. Maybe not all was lost, she supposed. Fire does not care if you believe in it. It spreads. Words do not care if anyone believes in them. They spread too. And so it was that on a statue overlooking Cavan Square, 
Terry and Mike talked over the news. They wondered if it was coming time to return to the ground and see what might be done, what should be done. And so it was that similar conversation was held in a hospital room between Liz and Carver Smith while their daughter, Annika, slept. What should they do? What could they do? And so it was that Everett McHugh and his fellow actors sat in a circle on the stage of the Lawn Street Playhouse, their work done for the day. It was easy to laugh at such wild claims, yet every laugh felt forced and painful. What if, but what if it was all true? And so it was that Mrs. Dunwoody ordered her group to abandon their perch on the Cobbler Street roof, despite their protest. They argued, but what if it's all a lie? We'll have given up our best spot in months for no reason. And so it was that the sentries in their boxes scanned the horizon with extra fervor, jumping at every flicker of motion. There was no reason to be afraid, they told themselves. No reason. And yet, they feared. And so it was that the man McRae sat in his office, overlooking the world, fingers tended and scar throbbing. The man was still with the mind, frantic. Combination of possibilities spun and stopped and shuddered. At last he had it. The precise means by which this happening could be turned to an advantage. Of course, certain things need to happen in certain ways. And all this was contingent on if the kaiju actually came. All across the city, one breath was held in collective weight. Silence seeped into the pavement. The very air danced with the electric charge of terrified anticipation. And so it was almost a relief when all four sentry posts lit up with green fire. Word rushed through the city like brush fire. The kaiju was back. It walked on two legs, following an intelligence no human mind could know. Never once did it so much as glance downward. The first outcropping of buildings broke against the scaly height of its legs, like waves against rock.
above, near its eyes. The sound of collapse was little more than a scrabble of pebbles. Blow among the people. It struck with the power of the end of the world. They fled their buildings, their camps, their vehicles. All through the streets, a scream sounded in a single voice, racing up and away without diminishing. They fled towards basements, cellars, underground garages. The scream reached the fortified center of the city. The desperate beat their fists against the gates and begged for sanctuary. The guards attempted to order the desperate to be calm, to be reasonable. Desperation has no patience for reason. They began to climb, to batter. Believing she had no choice, the guard captain gave the order. Fire. Defensive forces flocked to their posts and armed their assigned weapons. After the first kaiju assault, McRae had expended a great deal of energy amassing an armory capable of deterring any such threat. Now was the time to put that collection to the test. But the kaiju never came within range. Oddly enough, it seemed to go everywhere except towards the line of fire, as if somehow it knew to stay clear of the center of the city. The first time the kaiju had come, the attack lasted all of five minutes, with the creature cutting a single diagonal streak through the city and then continuing on as if it had not even noticed upon what it had tread. But today, today it lingered. Today, it wove through the streets until coming to Canavan Square. And then, with a sweep of its tail, the square was gone. Its statues scattered stones. With a swing of its foot, the laundry playhouse was so much dust and twigs floating in the ether of a crater. Wherever ghosts the boards had held and nurtured dispersed into the air. There did come one occasion when the kaiju looked downwards and seemed to take stock of what it had done when it stood over St. Peter's Hospital. A drab, concrete place. Unremarkable. It had actually begun its life as an asylum until some intrepid reporters had blown the truth of the staff's abusive practices wide open. The building had slept for decades. In the winter, its darkened hide resembled nothing so much as the bones of some hulking animal brought low within the forest and left to rot and worn. In the 1960s, 
a recently minted widow with no idea what to do with her windfall, opt to donate much of her fortune to seeing the wretched place return as a place of healing. She asked that the hospital be renamed St. Peter's, as he had always been her favorite saint as a young girl. It was said that St. Peter was the patron saint of lost things, which to her seemed as romantic a notion as she'd ever heard. So many lives have begun here. So many lives have ended here. So many hearts have been broken. So many souls had sought out that chapel, be they burned by faith or no, and there poured out their grief, their fury, their hope. So many sobbing goodbyes, so many tear-stained lows, so much agony, so much horror, so much love, so many people. Did the kaiju see any of this as it stayed its rampage for a moment? and studied the building? Did any part of it hesitate? Did any piece of it mourn? The kaiju took the hospital against claws and tore it from the earth. To the earth, the hospital returned as ash, as splinters, as nothing much at all. Its mission apparently completed for the moment. The kaiju leaned back on its haunches and began at last to rest. The fearsome eyes shut. The monster sank. The clouds Rose. Had Dr. Andrews been the type to complain, she might have brought up that there was not nearly enough space within the sewer for the sick and injured to properly rest. She might also have complained that the steady influx of new people, many of whom sported new injuries, was taxing her skills, her supplies, and her patience. She might also have told whoever happened to be listening that the sewers were so dark even routine, basic work, like wrapping gauze or applying bandages, became hideously complicated and required even more time, which she did not have to give. Finally, had Dr. Andrews been the type to complain, she might have made the observation that the sewer 
while no doubt an adequate habitation for those who desire such a thing, was in fact a fucking sewer, and she did not much want to be there any longer. But Dr. Sherry Andrews was not the type to complain. Complaints were like curse words. She sure could think them up, but never would one escape her lips. She had strayed far from a child taking in prayer service every Sunday, but some ticks stick. Had Dr. Andrews been the type who thanked God, she would have offered gratitude that the evacuation plan had been effective and enough forewarning had been provided so that St. Peter's was largely evacuated by the time the kaiju arrived. Only Veronica Cleary had remained inside. She planted herself within a room and barred the door. For a half hour, they pounded on the other side and begged she come out. Veronica Cleary had only one response, and that was a long, low hum sounding from underneath the door. Dr. Andrews was the last to give up. She placed a hand on the door, whispered, I'm sorry, and fled. It would have surprised her to learn that Veronica Cleary did not die alone. As the kaiju lifted the hospital from its roots, as the room quaked and jostled, her voice had been joined by another, sounding the same hum at the same frequency. Veronica Cleary turned and saw that sat beside her was an elderly woman holding in her hands a folded paper sigil. Dr. Andrews had no knowledge of this, but even if she had, she did not have time to deal with it. She had no time for complaints or thanks or any other breed of triviality. There was only the next patient, next problem. If things ever calmed down, perhaps her mind would devour itself just for want of something to do. But that was not today. She stooped down to where Sanji cradled his wife Pajoya's head. Her eyes were open, but there was a long gash across her forehead. Dr. Andrews nodded towards Sanchez's wards. He gained the picture. Chelly eased Joy's head off his lap and collected Vicky and her sister Maisie and moved further down the tunnel, the girl's dog trotting at their heels. Needle and thread in hand, Dr. Andrews went to work. It was small work, possibly pointless. Nonetheless, her hands were steady and her eyes clear. The tunnel began to shake. A cry went up. The kaiju was moving.
It went like that for hours. Still, then right, calm, then chaos, back and forth. There was no way to prepare yourself for the moment the world plunged into motion and abandoned all sense. You could only brace, hold on to whatever was near, and hope. The St. Peter survivors slept in shifts. Guards were posted at ends and edges of the tunnels, though no one could say for sure what they were guarding against. The sewer tribe would surely know every point of attack should such a move take them. And what good one person be against the kaiju if it came to that? While Priya Patel was beside her, Cassandra did not sleep. The women lay side by side, fully clothed, but skin to skin. They did not speak because words were not needed. When Priya left to take her guard shift, then at last Cassandra slept. She dreamed. She dreamed she walked down endless corridors of dark. The walls around her were pitted metal. The sewers still. Claustrophobic quiet threatened to choke her. She wanted to scream, but feared that no sound would be heard. In front of her, suddenly, a light. No, not a light, a shape, moving forward, a flap of wings, a hawk, what was a hawk doing in a sewer tunnel? Cassandra followed, she followed until the hawk brought her to a place she knew, a place where all the tunnels emptied out. It was here her mangled body had been deposited, seemingly dead. Life had persisted, yet this dream seemed unconvinced. Light she did not recall from before shone down. Shone down from where? They must be a mile underground at least. The light did not shine from anywhere. It shone. It did not come from any place. It was. Within the light, the hawk. Yet, as she watched, it was not the hawk that looked back, but a crocodile that stood like a man. Yet, there again was the hawk and then other faces and forms she did not recognize and could not have described. But she knew them. She knew what they were. Help us, Cassandra said. Save us. The faces within the light shifted. We cannot, was the reply.
Why not? For the good of the city, was the reply. There's not going to be a city left, Cassandra said. You'll be the gods of this world's biggest splinter pile if you keep waiting. The enemy tests our strength, was the reply. What enemy? He strains against his prison beneath the red sky, was the reply. So you let people die today on the chance that maybe you'll have to fight tomorrow? Cassandra clenched her fists. The faces settled. One she knew stepped clear of the light. I'm not really here, Mr. Oaks said. I'm far away. But a piece of me exists within these others. Or the opposite of that. It's not clear to me yet? Or maybe it's too clear. What are you talking about? Cassandra asked. The true enemy is testing the city. Testing, he waved a hand at the figures in the light. Them, us, me. If they, that is we, strike down a kaiju, then he will know that they were our power and retaliate even stronger. And so on and so forth and back and around we go. So we do nothing? We do nothing. Mr. Oaks replied. You, on the other hand, he nodded to something Cassandra could not see. The thing which stood beside her now might once have been a child, but it was barely conceivable as having ever been a human being. What stood glistening in the sewer light now was all scale and claw and teeth. Cassandra turned back to Mr. Oaks. But where he had been, there now stood the one and only old King Croc. A gift, the sewer god rumbled. He reached into his mouth. With a snap, one tooth came free. He handed it to his apostle. She handed it to Cassandra. The tooth was smooth and cold and very sharp. When Cassandra looked up, the king had retreated back into the light. There were no faces now, no distinct forms, only a single nebulous something, something that moved and spoke. One voice said, Strike with your eye. Another said, But kill with your heart. Cassandra awoke to a violent world. Mothers clutched children. Fathers wrapped families into possibly last embraces. When at last the pipe settled, 
a wail of terror and pain washed over the crowd. Cassandra looked about in the daze, still half within the dream. Then Priya was there, holding her. Are you okay, Cass? Are you okay? Cassandra realized one hand had been closed this entire time. Something against her palm was smooth and cold and very, very sharp. Cassandra opened her hand. She said, I'm fine, baby. I know what I have to do. What? What do you have to do? The tooth seemed almost to glow in the dank dark, as if she had plucked a piece of moon out of the sky. Cassandra said, I'm going to kill that fucking thing. Hey everybody, uh, I'm gonna try and keep this one short seeing as I have pretty much no voice left and you've already listened to enough of me rambling on. Uh, so I just wanna say thank you again to everyone for listening to another episode of Black Sun Dispatches, uh, part of the Snapunks Podcast Network. My name is Brandon Foley and I write, produce, and perform the show. Uh, if you like the show, if you don't like the show, regardless, please check out other programming available at Snapunks. Uh, we got a lot of really cool podcasts, a lot of great writing. Uh, there's no excuse not to find any all the great stuff that we have here on the site. Cinepunks is sponsored by Lehigh Valley Apparel Creations. You can hit them up at xlvacx.com. Again, that's Lehigh Valley Apparel Creations at xlvacx.com. You can also be a Cinepunk sponsor uh, or a Black Sun Dispatches sponsor if you so choose uh, by supporting our Patreon, which you can find on our website. Uh, if you like the show, please rate and review us on iTunes. Uh, it helps spread the word about the show. Thanks. You can find me on Twitter at the True Brennan F. And you can follow the show on Twitter at Black Sun Show. Uh, you can follow you know follow the show on Twitter for uh, updates about programming and that kind of stuff. Follow me on Twitter for rambling about yeah, like Avengers and things like of that nature. That's what I talk about a lot. Yeah, I'm tired. <laughs> I'm sorry. Black Sun Dispatch's logo was designed by Jennifer Rogers. The show, uh, the music is Winter by E.L. Heath. So we only have one episode left this season. Uh, that will be Kaiju Part 2, available hopefully on April 23rd. And that will wrap up this first season of Black Sun Dispatches. I hope you like this first part. I hope you like the second part even more. And I hope that you tell your friends. Just in general, just talk to your friends, man. Life's short. Make sure all your connections mean something. And make sure they know how much you care about them. Uh, if you happen to slip in that, hey, this is a cool podcast, Complex and Dispatches, and it's really neat, uh, this really handsome, nice guy, he's the host of it, uh, you know, put that in there. That'd be nice of you. All right. I'm clearly need to not be doing this anymore. So I will see you guys in a couple weeks uh, for the big uh, wrap-up.
Thanks. Bye.